Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. The facts about climate change have never been clearer. So why has communicating them to the public been such a challenge? Facts don't work by themselves. Facts only really work when, one, they're embedded in moral narratives. Secondly, facts don't work unless they're embedded in stories. And third, the brain only absorbs messages that are simple and repeated. Maybe the climate movement needs to think more like a public relations agency. What we really have to do is take a more integrated approach that recognizes that fact and reason and rationality have to be integrated with the emotional intelligence. Selling the Science of Climate Change. Up next on Climate One. I'm Devin Strolovich. The scientific consensus is that human activity is cooking the planet and disrupting our economies. Yet many people still don't believe that climate change will affect them personally or they deny that the problem is urgent enough to take action that would disrupt their lifestyles. Can better communication, maybe in the form of a PR campaign, help sell the science of climate change? In the first part of today's show, Greg Dalton talks to David Fenton, the founder and chairman of Fenton Communications. Over four decades, David has pioneered the use of PR, social media, and advertising techniques to advance social change. Some of his best-known campaigns include stimulating the rise in organic food sales, saving swordfish from extinction with a coalition of top chefs, public health campaigns against tobacco and endocrine-disrupting chemicals, and many more. David was formerly director of public relations at Rolling Stone magazine and co-producer of the No Nukes concerts in 1979 at Madison Square Garden. Here's Greg's conversation with David Fenton on selling the science of climate change. So you helped the scientist James Hansen create his TED Talk. So tell us how you helped him create some drama around his TED Talk and how that gets to the need to communicate climate more effectively? Uh, well, part of my job is to help scientists uh, speak English and uh, acceptable, uh, accurate drama. So I was helping the great Dr. James Hansen with his TED Talk a few years ago, and he said to me, well, David, I really want to explain to the audience that the Earth is so way out of energy balance. There's so much more energy coming into Earth than is able to go back out to space anymore. And I said, okay, Jim, that sounds great. How much is it? How bad is it? He said, it's really a lot. He said, it's a quarter watt per square meter. And I said, Jim, that doesn't sound like very much. I don't think people will get that. And Jim got angry at me. And he said, what do you mean? There's a lot of square meters on the Earth. I said, well, <laughs> do you think you could figure out another way to express that that would be accurate, but that would convey you know, why you're so concerned a little bit more? So he took out a calculator and he crunched a bunch of numbers and he said, oh, it's uh, the energy equivalent of 450,000 Hiroshima-sized atomic bombs going off in the atmosphere every day. I said, wow, now I think people will get it, Jim. That's a lot of energy we're trapping, isn't it? So same facts, different narrative, different effect. And scientists have led with the facts for many decades, and it hasn't been particularly effective. Why are leading with facts not, have not been an effective communication strategy for people concerned about climate? Well, there's a number of issues there. Um, facts don't work by themselves. Uh, facts are important, and they're essential. 
and uh, they're the only ethical thing to communicate, which is very important. But facts only really work when, one, they're embedded in moral narratives. People are moral actors. They have different moral systems, so you have to match the facts to that. And secondly, facts don't work unless they're embedded in stories. The brain processes stories much more than it does uh, isolated facts. And third, the brain only absorbs messages that are simple and that are repeated. This is the essence of cognitive science. It's the essence of communications theory. So if you're not using effective messages that you repeat, 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 and are simple, then you get nowhere. And we have a great practitioner of this now, I'm sorry to say, in our president. You know, make America great again. I'm sorry, but it works. You know, in our community, in the NGO, activist, science, legal community, we don't like simplifying things. Things are complicated. We hate repeating ourselves. Mm. So the things we don't like are what works, so we need to deal with this. Saddam 9-11, Saddam 9-11, how many times did we hear that? And even though it wasn't true, a lot of people, it sticks. So, you know, Goebbels, of course, said that uh, you repeat the big lie often enough, it becomes the truth. Well, for those of us interested in communicating the truth, uh, again, it's uh, the repetition is the key issue. So this is another reason why scientists haven't succeeded at this. I mean, they tend to be often poor communicators. They make things too complex. They don't like repeating themselves. They don't tell stories. They tell facts. Um, they lead with what they don't know, not what they know. Right. They, they stress <laughs> uncertainty in ways that the public doesn't really grasp. But it is a tough problem. Uh, communicating climate change is a very tough problem. Uh, it doesn't trip the normal hormonal responses we evolved uh, to protect ourselves with. You can't see it. You can't taste it. You can't smell it. It appears to be in the distant future. So communicating it is a challenge. There's no question about it. But the other thing that I think is happening is that in the old days, journalism had more power. And it has much less now. It's still very important, but it's not enough anymore. The media is very fragmented. So if the only thing that works to change the brain and public opinion is lots of repetition, you can no longer achieve that just by getting people in the news and on television because it's here today and gone tomorrow. So we have to devise and use the new technologies that allow you to deliver messages to people repeatedly. And unfortunately, there's very little of that being done on the climate issue. For a lot of people, the climate narrative started in 1988. It was a hot summer in Washington, D.C. Jim Hansen, the NASA scientist, testified before Congress. New York Times front page story the next day. And I interviewed Jim. And he said he thought he did his job. He told the responsible people running the country there's a problem. And he went back to his lab and thought that they would solve it. What, that was naive. What really happened? Well, Jim's a hero, and in, you know, if there is a history, he will be a hero. But that's the problem. See, this is the uh, Enlightenment fallacy. You know, if you come from the sciences, the law, the humanities, the academy, you, the basic worldview—it's a Cartesian worldview. It's from long, long ago—is that you know people are logical, and you tell a fact to somebody in power quietly and a light bulb goes off in their head and the world changes. Well, guess what? It doesn't work that way anymore. I'm not sure it ever did, but it certainly doesn't work that way now. Only campaigns work. Only the repetition, I'm repeating myself, I know, of simple messages changes public opinion and affects the brain. You know, ask the Russians. They bought the delivery of a bunch of simple, divisive messages on Facebook for very little money, and they help sway an election. And as for the climate community, and, and even it's larger than that, the, the NGO community in general, a lot of the philanthropic community, all these people do a lot of amazing, great things. But when it comes to marketing, when it comes to selling ideas, 
generally and unconsciously, people look down on that. That's that dirty, slimy, manipulative stuff that the bad guys do. And I think we need to embrace that you can demanipulate, you can unmanipulate, but you can't do it ignoring cognitive science and how the brain actually works. So the cognitive side, you, you mentioned that our brain's not wired to uh, respond to an invisible gas, but if there's a man with a gun or a tiger in the woods, then, then our reptilian brain is activated. So, so what's the solution other than repetition? What's the solution? Does it have to be more hope rather than fear? Well, I think like most things in life, it's, it's not one or the other. The question is, what's the right balance? What's, it's in the mix. So uh, not enough empirical work has actually gone into this uh, to really figure this out. But my strong suspicion is if we did that work, what we would find is that the message has to mostly be hope. But it also has to have some fear. So you have to have hope because otherwise people's nervous systems shut down, contemplating what is in effect the death of our species. And who wants to think about that? In fact, Psychologists have uh, theorized that uh, a lot of people, uh, the mental pathways they use to think about climate change are the same mental pathways we use to think about death and dying, and who wants to think about that? So you have to uh, lead with hope, and there is a lot of hope. This is a solvable problem if we hurry up. But if you don't also explain to people why we have to hurry up, the fear factor, you will not get the social mobilization that we need in time to save ourselves. You know, a lot of people don't understand that the carbon and methane that we're emitting today, especially the carbon dioxide, will stay in the atmosphere for thousands of years. And so the atmosphere is already full. You know, the, the mental frame image uh, of pollution in most people's minds is there's a smokestack, the dirty stuff goes up, and eventually it comes down. Not true in this case. So that's why we are running out of time. So we do have to have a mobilization uh, of, of opinion. Um, and, you know, it's interesting, we have so little time, but we're not focused on this. I mean, when you think about it, the public doesn't talk about climate change. It's not on people's minds very much. It's complicated, it's, it's politically divisive, and it's kind of a downer, so people... And also, you don't really come across it that often. For example, the network television news departments, um, with rare exceptions, will not say the words climate change or global warming, no matter how many wildfires, crazy uh, high-strong hurricanes uh, we have, no matter how many floods. You will not see this linked, or even the words mention climate change on the morning or evening news show. So how are people supposed to find out about it? And the environmental groups do great work. Thank God they're suing Trump. Hooray for their science and their policy work. But they spend very little percentages of their budgets on actually reaching the public. That's the missing link. So part of why people don't talk about this is that they don't run across it. Also, it, there's a narrative on the right, and, and Jerry Taylor, who you know, who was uh, worked uh, at the American Legislative Exchange Council and, and the Cato Institute, says that the right often looks at enviros as, as crybabies and crying wolf, and there's always, you know, the world's going to end, going back to Paul Ehrlich, population bomb, didn't happen. You know, you people on the left are always running around saying the world's going to end. It doesn't. Things that you don't foresee, technology, et cetera, come along. So we don't listen to you lefties saying, you know, you don't have credibility. Yeah, but remember, the fossil fuel industry for decades has had an intentional confusion and disinformation campaign, and it was very successful. I mean, for example, even today, according to the Yale Project on Climate Change Communications, only 12% of the American public know that there's scientific consensus that humans are changing the climate and it's dangerous. Only 12%. Now, when you think about it, really that's not surprising. One, that was the strategy of the fossil fuel industry to spread doubt about exactly that. Scientists don't agree. But there's another reason for Taken this. from the tobacco companies. That's right. Yeah. But I would have to say that we are all 
also culpable in this problem, and we need to face up to this. It's also only 12% because we don't reach the public. We have no project in any scale worth mentioning to actually explain to people that the scientists agree. And the research at Yale shows very clearly that in any population, when you show them that there's scientific consensus, support for action goes off the charts. So this is why I'm actually still optimistic, even though I hang out with climate scientists, and I don't recommend people do that, because that's a, it's hard to be optimistic when you hang out with climate scientists. And, and you can understand why they are so freaked out because of what they know. I'm optimistic because we have never really tried to reach the public consistently and systematically at scale. And I believe we can get them on board, and I don't think we can succeed without them. You're listening to a Climate One conversation with David Fenton about selling the science of climate change. Coming up, Greg Dalton learns more about David's elevator pitch for climate. Don't talk about the planet. That doesn't appeal to the public. And besides, the planet will be fine. It will recover in geologic time. We just won't be here. This is about humanity. That's up next when Climate One continues. Sponsorship for the Climate One podcast comes in part from Villanova University. Passionate about sustainability? Villanova University offers graduate degrees in sustainable engineering. The master's and the PhD can be completed as a full-time or part-time student, online or on campus, and is available for engineers and non-engineers alike. Villanova's interdisciplinary program explores the full environmental, social, and economic aspects of sustainable engineering. VUSustainableEngineering.com We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about selling the science of climate change with David Fenton founder and chairman of Fenton Communications, and a four-decade veteran of public relations campaigns for the environment, public health, and human rights. Here's your host, Greg Dalton. Are you sincerely optimistic, or do you just say you're optimistic because you think you have to be express optimism to be effective? No, I'm optimistic. I mean, I'm realistic. But it's, not, it's too late to avoid some terrible consequences. But it's not too late to avoid the worst. So had we tried to really get people to understand the urgency of this in a way that they can understand and that actually reaches them repetitively and failed, I'd be really depressed. But we haven't tried it yet. I mean, imagine, I know a lot of people in the environmental community who think we should not talk about climate change. We should just say... Clean energy, isn't it great? Don't use the dirty C word. Look yeah. at the polls. Everybody supports clean energy. Well, that's true. But we're not going to get the level of economy-wide mobilization that we need to transform the energy system rapidly in time to avoid the worst consequences without public understanding and support. The notion that you can solve this without people knowing about it or talking about it, you know, that's an elite fantasy. And we live in a time of populism where people question and, and distrust elites, whether it's financial elites, political elites, scientific elites. There's an anti-intellectualism, an anti-science stream in our country these days that is bigger than the Trump administration. There is. You know, and it's fueled by, you know, some very nefarious forces, including in the media. But uh, I think that um, we can reach people, and but we don't have a project to do it. That's not what our community does. You know, the great linguist, Professor George Lakoff, retired now from UC Berkeley, he has an interesting theory about why this is. So Lakoff says, we come from the humanities, the sciences, and the law, but our enemies go to business school. And they learn how the brain works. And in order to succeed in their careers, they have to learn how to successfully market products and services to their customers. So I ask people, how much do you think it costs to buy a 30-second television ad just in Washington, D.C.? on CNN or Fox, just in Washington, D.C. And most people say $50,000 or $100,000. Or and I surprise them by explaining to them that it's $1,000. Often it's $500. People are amazed. And this is what I'm preaching. It's time to think this way because otherwise we're 
basically practicing unilateral disarmament. So Al Gore did that after his uh, Academy Award winning, winning film in 2007, An Inconvenient Truth, and he, what, a couple hundred million dollars behind Nancy Pelosi, Newt Gingrich, unusual suspects sitting together on a couch in a place saying, we can solve this in a bipartisan way. Was that an effective campaign? Was it an effective use of millions of dollars? A, a few answers to that. So one, again, only repetition works. That was 2007. So it's been 11 years. We haven't done anything like this since. I would say also that in, in hindsight, it would have been good perhaps to spend more of that money to, uh, on explaining to the public more simply what's at stake and how this works. See, I think people can understand it, but look at our language. If we talked about, you know, we're trapping heat on Earth so it's getting hotter and the ice is melting and it's gonna flood our cities, that's not hard for people to understand. But even now, the community talks about this issue every which way. It's the Tower of Babel. So the other side has its simple messages that they all use, and we have complexity. So who's going to win that? I actually think that a lot of people see it in their gardens. They see it in the weather. They see it around the country. Of course, they know about faraway places that they don't really know or care about, uh, the polls, et cetera. But what they don't know is what they can do that will make a difference. Well, here's the figures. So 70% of the American public agrees the climate is changing. Only 51% believe it's humans. But I think, perhaps most importantly, only 20% think it's urgent. So the urgency of this issue has not sunk in to this culture. It has not. And that's our job, because it's the most urgent thing we face. You know, the way I like to talk about this is, I'm interested in a lot of other issues, uh, but we won't get to solve those issues if we don't solve this one in a hurry. Right. Hank Paulson came to Climate One and said, as bad as the, the financial meltdown was, a group of people could get in a room and had the tools to put out that fire. Uh, they printed money. They bailed out the banks. You know, it wasn't pretty. You can debate it. But they had the ability and the tools to do it. When it comes to climate, when it gets to that, that really bad point, humans don't really have the tools to address the climate once we've gone over the cliff. You know, as, as Dr. Hansen likes to say, once the ice sheets start to move, we don't know how to stop them. Right. You know, I tell uh, people I work with, we should not use the word environment. The word environment means to the public that you care about something other than them. It's separate, yeah. That's right. Mm -hmm. You know, I tell people, don't talk about the planet. That doesn't appeal to the public. And besides, the planet will be fine. It will recover in geologic time. We just won't be here. This is about humanity. And if we make it about that more and we show people more clearly and simply and repetitively, look, we're at a fork in a road. There's two paths, basically. So one's a really beautiful path. You get clean energy, it's cheaper. The cost of energy will just keep falling if we do it right. You'll have lots of jobs. You'll have much more prosperity. You'll have a stable climate. It's really great. You'll put a lot of people to work, insulating all their buildings, putting up solar panels, pa painting their roofs white. Sounds pretty good, right? The other path is certain decline certain economic decline, certain suffering, certain. So why would you allow just a very few people in the, the fossil fuel industry and their political agents to force us down the road of decline? That's just crazy. If you look at the mobilizations recently, uh, you know, gay marriage was very personal. People started to know someone in their family, someone at their workplace. Why don't they have the same rights as me? Uh, gun violence, you know, Parkland, those students, it's very human. There's, there's a human face to the victims That's right. and the villains. Uh, me too. There's a human face to the victims. And they're all moral movements, and right? The, and the villains. Climate doesn't fit into that same kind of human face of the villain or human face no, of the victim. No, it does fit the in. The face of victims is a polar bear, not a it, human. Well, it does fit in. It's just we haven't done it right. Um, it is the ultimate moral issue, whether we're going to allow a small group of people to destroy the future of humanity and civilization, 
That's pretty much a moral issue. And we're victims of the fact that we can't change the energy system on our own. Only collective action can do that. You can't blame the victims. And everybody, you know, you know, we're all trying to do the best we can with that. It's not so easy. So you don't think we're complicit? Well, I don't think we're responsible. You know, this is a, a, an industrial economic planning issue that you can't blame on people. You know, we need an economy-wide mobilization, and I'm sure it will happen. You know, I, I spend more and more time talking to Republicans about climate change because it's essential that we make this a less partisan issue or we won't solve it. We have to have Republican support. We're not going to get all of them, but I think we can get quite a few. And we, uh, Many I tell of those them, we're all going to end up on the same side of this issue eventually. All of us. It's going to be like we've been attacked by a foreign power. The problem is, if we wait till that's so obvious, that the weather has made it so obvious, too late. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking to veteran PR strategist David Fenton about selling the science of climate change. Some people say that the, the most prominent messengers are these predictable liberal faces, Al Gore, Leonardo DiCaprio, maybe even Bill Nye. Uh, where are the new messengers? Who are the uh, uh, messengers you think they're effective to reach people on the right who are NRA members and people who don't call themselves and would never call themselves an environmentalist? Who's reaching across that divide? Well, there are some great spokespeople now from the Republican side or that has appealed to uh, conservatives, libertarians, evangelicals. The problem is they're unknown because there is not a project and there's not funding to help them become well-known. There's a lot of philanthropic money in climate change, thank goodness. The problem is that most of it goes into what I call the supply of policy. People fund studies, reports, science, meetings, conferences, you know, opening offices around the world. And that's all great, and it has achieved a lot. We now don't lack a supply of policy. We know what to do. We lack demand. But almost no money is going into stimulating demand, and that's what needs to happen. So take, for example, Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is a Christian evangelical climate scientist at Texas Tech. She is... Uh, among the best, uh, uh, most articulate, plain English speakers about climate change. She's married to an evangelical preacher who used to be a climate denier. And Dr. Hale makes great videos online. And, you know, maybe they get 35,000 views when they should have 30 million, but there's no funding to help her with that. Or take Jerry Taylor, who you were talking about. So Jerry was a massive climate denier at the Cato Institute. He's an intellectually honest libertarian. His mind was changed by the accumulating scientific evidence. Now he campaigns in Congress for a price on carbon. He should be well known in Republican circles. So think about this. We're all upset. We'd have so few Republicans involved. But if you're a Republican in America and you go into your social media feeds, all you're going to see is that climate change is a hoax. That's it. You will get no other information. Now, we could change that. You know, it's not just the Russians who can buy ads on Facebook to change public opinion. We could do it, too. Or maybe we can even get Zuckerberg to do some science education on his platform at no charge. But we don't focus on this. So how are we going to get Republicans on board if we don't affect their perceptual information flow? We could. So the only organizations that have the budgets big enough that you're talking about, the big green organizations, Greenpeace, Environmental Defense, NRDC, Sierra Club, uh, what do you think about their messaging and also the business model that drives that? I don't think it's so much about the business model. Those are great groups, and um, our community has a certain orientation, policy, law, science. That's what we work on. That's what we spend our budgets on, and we should. The problem is that we're not focused enough on this additional weapon, which is public communication. You know, when David Brower ran the Sierra Club in, what, the 1960s and 70s, so he would buy full-page ads in the New York Times attacking polluters and bad actor politicians, and he would put them massively on the defensive and cause all this media coverage. It was like bomb-throwing. 
you know, you don't see that kind of activity so much now. And I'm urging we bring it back. I saw there's a documentary called uh, Merchants of Doubt, which is based on a book by uh, Eric Conway and Naomi Reskes about communication and the, the history of climate communications. A bunch of environmentalists in the room, and they were all taken by uh, one of the princes of darkness in the film, Mark Morano. Uh, so what do you know about him and how effective he has been as a uh, contrarian, uh, sort of attacking messengers, reframing, and really having an outsized influence on the climate debate. Well, he's less effective now, but he was effective. He took advantage of a flaw in American journalism, which is uh, uh, overly balanced. The balance bias. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Reporters want to quote both sides. And, you know, in science, there isn't two sides, not when you get to 97, 98% confidence levels. And the false equivalency is a terrible problem so that, you know, you'll have some paid whore like Mark Morano, who's not a scientist, you know, up on television debating a real scientist. Or, you know, uh, sometimes uh, TV will have a climate scientist debate a scientist whose expertise has nothing to do with climate. So they took advantage of uh, that problem, that weakness in journalism, and they were very successful at spreading confusion and slowing people down. I'll tell you something else they did. So as I said before, NBC, CBS, ABC, they don't mention the words global warming or climate change. So I've talked to executives there. Here's the reason. They're intimidated by the right and the fossil fuel companies. The issue has become so partisan and politicized, sadly, that they're afraid to focus on it, which is, you know, incredible cowardice on their part. The, cl- the Weather Channel will do it. The Weather Channel reaches a whole lot less people, but yes. So we could get those people to feel pressured to do this, not only pressured from the right not to do it, but we have no campaign to do that either. Right, and they journalists have been schooled and trained that to, to not connect a single weather event to climate change. Climate is about long-term averages, so when it's snowing in Atlanta, uh, or there's unusual weather, or, or uh, they're, they're trained not to connect that to climate because scientists have taught them that. That's part of it. But I think print journalism actually does a pretty good job of covering climate change. You know, in a group that I helped bring into being called Climate Nexus has done a great job in improving the journalistic coverage of climate change in print journalism. The problem, again, is that print journalism, it can't possibly uh, provide enough repetition of messages to actually change opinion. That's, that's the conundrum. Documentary films. I wanted to be a documentary filmmaker when I was at the Columbia School of Journalism. Uh, Many are made. Again, this comes from perhaps betraying my Cartesian bias here of of facts. Uh, Many documentaries have been made about climate. Many of them are about issues. Few of them are really character-driven and have an emotional attachment. Ai Weiwei did a fabulous documentary of human flow about the refugee crisis, but I can't really... There's no really emotional connection with any one main character in that film. Others, a lot of them, are issue-based about solar panels and winds. Why aren't there... Where's the great... The one exception, I would say, is The Island President, which was about the president of the Maldives. It's a good film. And, of course, An Inconvenient Truth, was, which had a big effect. It did. The, little, some people thought there was a little too much of Al Gore in, in that. Um, it still had a big effect. It just, you know, by the evidence... You look at the public opinion poll history on this issue. When Al did the movie and the rest of that campaign, it had a big effect. The problem is that it sparked a counter-reaction, Climategate, you know, when they distorted uh, uh, the emails from these climate scientists. That was very intentional. Uh, And our community didn't keep up the level of activity that Gore was doing with the film and other things in 2007. You know, our activity went down and theirs went up. That doesn't work. But uh, we need to have people in the creative community and the artistic community get much more involved in this issue. You know, in the civil rights movement, in the anti-Vietnam War movement, the, the artists and the writers and, and the creative community were deeply involved, and it made a big difference. You know, we have to pay attention to stories and morality and visualizations and metaphor and language. That's what we need to do. That's the missing part of the war on climate. 
So last question. You, you say you're an optimist. Many climate people I know have some secret or not so secret plan to have a hideaway in New Zealand or British Columbia or have some guns and food stashed in their backyard. Do you have a secret escape plan if this, in case this communication plan that you're talking about doesn't move the needle? Just no coastal property, that's all. <laughs> no, but I do have a plan. You know, uh, my friend George Marshall wrote a great book. He called it, uh, Don't Even Think About It, Why Our Brains Are Not Wired for Climate Change. And he said, you know, what we should do is uh, tell the world that the North Korean government has discovered a dangerous gas. The North Korean government is pumping a dangerous gas into the atmosphere that is raising global temperatures and sea levels. And everybody would say, go bomb those people. And you'd say, well, it's climate change. Or scientists have discovered a giant asteroid is headed towards Earth, and it's bigger than the one that wiped out the dinosaurs, and it's going to hit in 10 years. And everybody would say, you're not waiting 10 years. You get those missiles up there tomorrow. Knock that thing off course, and you'd say, ha ha, it's climate change. Now, are you thinking about it differently? Greg Dalton has been talking about selling the science of climate change with David Fenton, founder and chairman of Fenton Communications, and a four-decade veteran of PR campaigns for the environment, public health, and human rights. This is Climate One. Coming up, Greg welcomes a new panel of guests and talks about strategies for challenging climate change denial. When we're in social interactions with people we trust and care about, that is absolutely where we can start to see openings in the fixation on the denial. That's up next when Climate One continues. You're listening to a Climate One program about selling the science of climate change. Greg Dalton now welcomes Michael Mann, distinguished professor of meteorology at Penn State University, Renee Lertzman, a writer focused on the psychological aspects of climate and the environment, and Christine Russell, a veteran science journalist and senior fellow at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Here again is your host, Greg Dalton. Renee Lertzman, science is complicated, it's abstract. Yeah. Do we focus too much on the science, and is it more emotional things that people respond to? Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we're confronted with information that brings up uh, conflict with uh, our beliefs, our worldview, our um, you know, ideology, whatever, um, our mind will actually generate incredible strategies to deny, repress, and basically avoid uh, our engagement with the situation and with the reality. That's just, that's just um, neurologically, neuro, you know, from a neuroscientific perspective, that's what our minds do. When conflict is introduced, our, our neural networks are activated, and we actually do seek out uh, scenarios that help us stay in alignment with a worldview. Um, and I think the reason why the messages and the discourse have efficacy and land with people is precisely because there's an incredible difficulty in coming to terms with what's happening. So, you know, I'm also reminded in interviews I've done with Republicans around climate change, hardcore skeptics, that we see exactly what we're talking about. A lot of vacillation between a recognition and acknowledgement Somehow you kind of know that they know deep down that something's up, but they can't allow themselves to go there because of my you know, identity, affiliation. It doesn't feel safe or acceptable to do that. Our job is to try to make it more safe, to, make it, to, to give one another permission to actually go there. Christine Russell, has the media done a good job doing that? Well, first of all, the media is a plural word, <laughs> and so... I, I think uh, I, I've seen uh, a number of nostalgia pieces recently. Remember the good old days of Walter Cronkite, where that's the way it is. And I think people are really realizing that, again, a lot of the polarization is because people are getting their information from so many different sources. And so one of our problems, if you're in mainstream news media is getting people the information, and people are still getting a lot of information from television, but they're also getting it from selected sources of information that reinforce what they think to start with. And so we don't have that collective wisdom, and I think one of the challenges for science, for journalism, uh, for any field, is how do you get a 
better, uh, more educated audience on some of these areas of science. And I think the news media um, has lost a certain amount of trust, and people are blaming the media, and particularly on the Republican side, uh, the media is as much a target as everybody else. And so uh, we, I think, in, in the news media, in mainstream uh, journalism, really have a challenge to try to reach out in a bigger pond and reach other people than uh, just uh, preaching to the converted. So I think we really have a challenge, and I think we're going to have a lot to cover in the coming months, that's for sure. Mike Mann, I'd like to ask you about uh, a real legitimate villain, perhaps. Uh, Frederick Seitz uh, was former president of the National Academy of Sciences, president of Rockefeller University, won many awards, and he, you write in your book, uh, The Madhouse Effect, is a founding figure in the art of modern-day science denialism. So tell us how such a distinguished figure kind of went to the dark side. Yeah, you know, when people say, how is it that you know, somebody that smart cannot get it, cannot get the science of climate change? It's not a matter of intelligence. I think we have to recognize that. Um, there are ideological uh, you know, issues at work. In his case, um, he actually ended up receiving, I think, something like $70 million from uh, R.J. Reynolds, tobacco, to found an institute uh, whose primary function would be to attack the science linking tobacco and human health. And there's a famous uh, saying uh, attributed to um, uh, uh, Upton Sinclair. Uh, It's very difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on not understanding it. Um, And so I think we have to recognize that there is denialism that comes from exactly the place that Renee is describing. Uh, Some of it comes from you know, a, a self-interested <laughs> uh, sort of uh, origin as well. Um, and I think in some sense, that's the more challenging uh, denialism to access and maybe uh, convert and turn around uh, because it's so self-interested and it's so tied to ideology. I don't think any amount of um, information was going to convince Uh, the president, a former president of the National Academy of Sciences, that he was wrong uh, about this science. Uh, I think he was absolutely convinced that he was right, and he was convinced that he was doing the right thing from a political standpoint. Um, I think that's a harder nut to crack. I think it's uh, part of what we face, the fact that the same interests, some of the same talking heads who were working for the tobacco industry decades ago, denying the connection between tobacco and climate change, are today receiving money from fossil fuel interests to undermine the public's understanding and and policymakers' understanding of uh, the science of climate change. Uh, And that is... uh, The same argument today is being made actually by the same lead attorney uh, from the tobacco uh, wars is now making the the argument that ExxonMobil, for example, may have engaged in exactly the same behavior. Renee Lertzman, I want to ask you about the power of personal influence, personal experience, and perhaps children getting to deniers as a way of changing people's minds Mm. uh, that have not otherwise been changed by facts. Right. So... Yes, there's enough um, evidence and research that supports the fact that when we have direct experience of issues, that influences our perceptions. But we want to be very careful that we don't go too far in that end of the spectrum. So going back to the point around our psychological challenges around engaging with these issues, we do have imaginations. We do have capacity to engage with our imagination. But having that direct visceral experience can support that, but it's not the full story. So Carrie Norgard's work um, in Norway, her book, Living in Denial, explores how people living in a village where snow was literally not there, um, people were still in profound denial. So even when things are right in front of us, waters are rising, homes in Calgary are being flooded, people can still absolutely be in denial of what is happening. Um, The point that you mentioned around the influence of children is also becoming more recognized as very powerful. So one organization, the Alliance for Climate Education, that I've been working with actually uh, is focusing on supporting young people to have more effective conversations with their parents. We're going to be studying that, doing research with some folks over at Stanford. So we will be able to see 
how the conversations that young people, especially teens, are having with their parents and how that might introduce some openings. Uh, and this also relates to the point around conversation, that when we're in social interactions with people we trust and care about, that is absolutely where we can start to see openings in you know, the fixation on the denial. Chris Russell. Well, no, I was going to say, um, in the smoking, uh, I covered a lot of the smoking wars and the financial influence, but also during that era, there were good studies showing that kids who had learned in school about smoking uh, came home and did have an impact on their parents, uh, and wisely so, given uh, secondhand smoke, as it turned out to be. So I think this anecdotal approach it's also used in journalism quite a bit, the anecdotal lead where you tell the story of what has happened to someone, and it can go either way. And perhaps one of the stronger ways to get public interest in the seriousness of the issue is to have more stories coming from places where people are being impacted. And I think one of the surprises, in a way, is the evidence that is happening all around us as opposed to uh, in our, there'll be more to come, obviously, but uh, I think telling more stories about how it's impacting and then bringing the science in to explain how that might be related or precursor and such has always been an effective way, I think, giving people, and it doesn't happen in journalism, uh, it's always a challenge as a science journalist, figure out how to get the science out in a kind of easy dose and not cough medicine, so. Uh, we did a poll on Twitter. We had 850 votes, and we asked the question, what do you think about human-caused climate change? 61% said it's real and will impact me. 11% is said it's real and won't impact me. 12% said it's natural, and 16% uh, said it's a hoax. <coughs> so I wanna get to this, it's real and won't <coughs> impact me, because, um, Renee Lurzman, that's a form of climate denial light. It's, we, we're talking here about denial, which is it's not happening, and we hear about that. But there's another thing, which is it's happening, but it's gonna hurt people far away, or polar bears, or people on Pacific Islands. It's not gonna affect me on a hill uh, somewhere where I'll be safe from sea level rise. Right. I call this the kinder, gentler climate change denial. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, Mike's written about the kind of these variations as well. So. There's some nice research out there around um, these variations. Um, you can think of it as rationalization, um, distantiation where you're actually putting space or distance between yourself and the issue. These are all very well-known documented strategies that we engage in that, as you say, are not cut and dry denial. There's also disavowal where you're you're not denying something exists, but you're choosing to not actually live in that awareness. You're choosing to go on business as usual. It's not the same as saying it doesn't exist. So these, again, are sort of well-known, well-crafted strategies. And, and as Kari Norgard has written about in Mike, in your book, that we need one another to actually corroborate, to make it real. So it's not just me as an individual going around having this thought. I need people in my life, and I need social interactions who can mirror and reflect that back. And Chris Russell, a lot of this, the journalism around climate is melting glaciers, droughts, bad stuff happening. And is that because uh, good news stories don't get on page one? Is it because they don't have some tension or journalists are predisposed to talk about planes crashing, not planes that land safely, sure. Uh, but where is the, the positive stories? Well, I think the things connecting the dots is the energy picture is obviously the bigger uh, story. What can we do? Um, you can do something about a problem regardless of whether you know all of the details. And so most of the surveys that are being done show considerable public support for renewable energy, for uh, actually paying more to get uh, you know, cars that run on more efficient fuel. So I, I think that energy and technology, if it's not exaggerated, provides a kind of counterpoint, and also the speed with which, particularly all around the world, renewable energy is growing, gives people a something to do, because I think it's definitely true 
particularly, you know, we've got to stay away from the stories that the ice is up, the ice is down, and try to have more context in these stories. But I think more coverage and getting the business and energy reporters to also bring in the science and explain how uh, this more efficient car or electric car, I guess, how that connects to doing something about the environment and about climate change. Mike Mann? Yeah, I was just going to say that um, that sort of the ice is up, the ice is down. Uh, Andy Revkin refers to that as the whiplash effect. Uh, these seemingly contradictory stories that people hear that causes confusion and doubt and potentially denial. Renee Lertzman, facts are confusing. We, facts haven't changed. This mountain of facts haven't caused us to do the thing that we need to do. Um, can we just put science and facts aside and deal with something else? No, absolutely not. But what we really have to do is take a more integrated approach that recognizes that fact and reason and rationality have to be integrated with the emotional reality. Um, I think in the focus on solutions and positive stories, we want to be very careful that that's not actually sufficient. It's sort of like what's called bypassing. When you just focus on the kind of rah-rah, here's the good story, you're not actually addressing the other part of the story and the experience that this is this is a little overwhelming, it's a little scary, this is a little confusing. And I think if we do more experimentation in our communications, where we, and this is a place of innovation, we're all being kind of forced to do things differently right now, to, to experiment with addressing the reality and the facts and the solutions, but bring in a little bit of that emotional intelligence, bring in a little bit of that, you know, this is kind of hard or whatever that is, and then move into and look what's happening now. And I think we'll see a much greater level of receptivity and engagement in the issues if we take that more um, kind of an integrated angle. Greg Dalton has been talking about climate change denial with Renee Lertzman, a writer focused on the psychological aspects of climate and the environment. Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Meteorology at Penn State University, and veteran science journalist Christine Russell. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.